Parenthood is a time of so much change for you and your baby. A little reliable information can go a long way towards making this new life a good life. I'm Jessica Rolfe, and this is My New Life, a Love Every Podcast. While the science aligns on what's healthy for a baby's brain development, when it comes to how to care for our babies, there's a seemingly endless supply of competing perspectives. Parents are swimming in advice on sleep, feeding, and parenting philosophies. In this season of the podcast, we aim to provide a variety of curated perspectives so you can make informed choices for your family. I remember encountering a mom in the park a few years ago. Her child was refusing to leave the playground, and she handled it beautifully. It seemed like she had all the parenting scripts in her back pocket. I wanted to sound like her when I talked to my kids. Calm, empathetic, creative. It's remarkable how choosing your words carefully can mean the difference between a moment of connection or disconnect. Today's guests are experts at effective communication with young children. Joanna Faber and Julie King are co-authors of the best-selling book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. And they've just released a second book, How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen, Whining, Fighting, Meltdowns, Defiance, and Other Challenges of Childhood. I learned a lot from my conversation with Joanna and Julie. So we have a goal. We set a goal of first-time listeners in our families. We say, okay, let's try. I'll try to be first-time listeners. But that really just doesn't happen in our daily life. So how do you get your kids to listen to you? To get them to like brush their teeth when they're supposed to, to put their shoes on, to leave the park? How does this really work? Okay. It seems like the most direct way to get a kid to do something would be you know, to directly tell them to do it. You know, no, stop it. Put the cat down. Get your coat on. No, not later. Now. And sometimes we had a threat, which of course we call a natural consequence. You know, if you throw rocks one more time, I'm taking you straight home. The problem is your kid doesn't hear the whole sentence. What she hears is throw rocks one more time. Why? Because threats make us feel defiant, which is the last thing we want our kids to feel when we're trying to get their cooperation. So we need alternatives to orders and threats. And Julie, what have we got? What have we got for alternatives? Okay, I'm going to give you several for the rock exa- throwing rock example. And the first one is to give information. Rocks can hurt people. They're very hard. This gives the child the opportunity to say, oh, I don't want to hurt somebody. I won't throw it. Or we could offer them a choice. We might say, looks like you're in a throwing mood. Do you want to throw a paper plane or a ball or or maybe some leaves? Or maybe for a slightly older child, we might put that child in charge and ask, what can you find to throw that won't hurt anybody? So there's three tools that you can try with your kids. Here's another idea to keep in mind. It's more helpful to tell a child what they can do instead of what they can't. So instead of saying, no, no, don't throw that rock, you can say, oh, we can play on the slide 
or we can pl- go play hide and seek by the trees. But what if your child is dead set on throwing rocks? You may have to take action. We call it taking action without insult. So I might say to that child, we're going home now. I can't let anyone get hurt from flying rocks. We'll come to the playground another day. But let me mention one more tool that is my favorite for the youngest set, which is to be playful. You know, one thing that gets old really fast for, well, both parents and kids is how grim it gets when we're constantly telling them not to do things or that they have to do things, you know, right now. So if we can find a way to play around, to make it into a game, that just changes the whole mood. So let's imagine, for example, that you want your kid to clean up a mess. Instead of saying, these blocks better be put away when I come back or I'm going to throw them away. You might try saying, hmm, how many blocks can you toss in the bag in just two minutes? You set the timer. Ready, set, go. Or maybe you might make the block bag talk. I'm hungry. Feed me blocks. Yum. The green ones are delicious. Ah, no, not the yellow ones. That taste like vomit. No. Suddenly you have a little kid who can't resist throwing more blocks into the block bag. Well, one of my favorite ways to be playful is to make an inanimate object talk. So if you're trying to get a foot on a child, I'm sorry, get a shoe on the foot of a child, Rather than, you know, saying, sit still, young lady, you know, don't you dare kick me and try to jam that shoe onto her foot. You might make the shoe talk. I feel so empty. I need a foot in me. And very few little kids can resist a talking shoe. Love these examples. So one of my favorite tools that you talk about in your book is giving in fantasy what you can't give in reality. Can you explain this for me? Okay, here's a story I recently had from a preschool teacher who was handing out the little milks in the cardboard cartons for the snacks. And this little boy wanted a, a chocolate milk, but they were all out. And he started to get upset. And she said, look, it's not going to kill you to have a regular milk for one day. And, and he said, yes, it is. And he got even more upset. And then she remembered this thing of giving in fantasy. So she said, boy, I wish I had a magic wand that I could go zoop and turn this into a chocolate milk for you. You know, how much would you want? Would you want just the one carton or would you want a whole big gallon of it? Or or would you want a swimming pool of it that you could just swim around in the chocolate milk? Because, you know, when you're giving in fantasy, you don't have to be cheap. So the kid said swimming pool, of course. And he took the, the milk and and the conflict was over. It's not always easy to acknowledge painful emotions like sadness or anger or fear or worry, you know, because we, we kind of want to protect our kids from those emotions. But it helps to keep in mind that our acceptance of all of kids' feelings, not just the positive ones, is it, it's really a gift that we can give to our children. It lets them know they're not alone. You know, somebody understands, and that makes tough situations immensely easier to handle. And it also gives them a vocabulary of emotions, and it gives them self-knowledge. Lots of brain growth happens in the first three years of life. But how much of who we become is predetermined by our genetics? 
and how much is based on our early experiences. According to neuroscientists, it boils down to about 50-50. 50% genetics and 50% environment. But what exactly is this environment? What makes for an environment that is enriching for little brains? At Lavevry, we have brought together experts from all fields of early childhood development to answer this question. Neuroscientists, Montessori experts, occupational therapists, and speech therapists. For every stage from birth to age four, we have just the right activities, tools, and information so you can feel confident you are giving your child the very best start. Kids take so much instruction in the course of any given day. You know, it's like, it's not a surprise that they tune us out sometimes. So how can we phrase our instructions so that our children will want to follow through? Okay, so we can do all that stuff that we just talked about with offering choices and putting the child in charge and being playful. Plus, we can give them feedback that encourages them to stick with a task. So it might sound something like this. Wow, I see you got almost all your dirty laundry in the basket. There was a lot. I can see a few patches of floor showing. And you also got those three big trucks away. All that's left to do is put the books on the shelves, the rest of the toys in the bin, and make the bed. You know, the effort he made has been appreciated. It's been noticed. He's motivated to keep going. So do you recommend using timeouts? The short answer is no. (laughs) Um, The longer answer is uh, that I I think the timeout fantasy is that, you know, we send a kid to the corner to sit for five minutes uh, and he sits there, you know, one minute for each year of his age, I guess is the formula, and that the kid sits there contemplating his wrongdoing and resolving to behave better once he finishes his mindful meditation. Uh, But in real life, it doesn't generally work that way. The kid who is banished to time out for, say, you know, pushing his little brother He's most likely sitting there fuming. You know, it's no fair. He did it first. Mom likes him better than me. I'm going to get back at him. So the reason we don't recommend timeouts is is that they don't usually improve a kid's behavior the next time around. I had a preschool teacher um, tell me this very succinctly. She said, the kids who go to timeout are the same ones over and over again. It doesn't give them any alternative ways to deal with whatever the problem is. She told me about one kid who would always sort of kick and poke at other kids during story hour, and they would send him to the timeout beanbag chair, which seems like a pretty cushy kind of timeout. And um, he would proceed to take off his shoes and socks, and then he would throw them one at a time at the kids in the circle. So it just, you know, it just made him mad, which is not to say that you might not need to enforce a break in the action. You know, say if a kid's getting all wound up and he's running around and bashing into other kids, you know, you might say like, hey, Joey, we need a break. Come sit with me. Uh, I actually had a, a next door neighbor who would do this and she would say to her child, you know, hey, honey, come on, we need a timeout. But to her, a timeout wasn't 
banishing the kid into the corner, she would call her kid over and she'd say, come sit in my lap. Let's take a time out. I've heard some parents call this a time in actually, you know, it's just a way of reconnecting with your child while she has a little chance to calm down. So we're not against that kind of timeout. We're against the kind of timeout that feels like a punishment, that feels like you're being banished. And I guess an alternative to timeout would depend on the conflict. So if you, do you want to give me an example of what, a con, uh, what kind of conflict would come up and then we'll think about what we could do instead? Yeah, so an example would be my, thinking back, my, my toddler hitting the baby, being really like aggressive with the baby. What do we do? And let me ask you a little follow-up question. Like, why do you think your toddler's hitting the baby? Just sort of out of general resentment that the baby's always in your arms? Yeah, I think it's it's not, I think it's a general feeling. It's a general feeling that my toddler has around resentment. Yeah. But then there was nothing that precipitated that specific instance. It was just an, an act of, it was a momentary act of aggression. Okay, so the first thing, you do is take action and snatch her up and say, I can't let you hurt the baby. But then since what you're, what you're getting is that this is out of resentment towards the baby at another time when you're not grabbing her away from the baby and saying, I can't let you hurt the baby is, is to just sit down with her and say, boy, you know, sometimes Sometimes you wish you were the only one. You know, it's not easy to have a younger, you know, little baby in the house sometimes. Baby's always in the in in my arms. And sometimes maybe you want to be in my arms. Come here, be my big baby. And and give that kid a little cuddling. Because what we're aiming for here is not just in the moment. We're aiming to to make the older kid feel better better towards the baby and punishing the older kid around the baby doesn't actually make that baby safer. Julie, do you want to add anything? I I just want to add that it actually adds to the resentment. So it does the opposite. It makes, it actually creates more of a sort of dangerous situation for the baby because it reinforces the, the toddler's sense that you do love the baby better and and I feel bad about myself and you know, all those negative feelings, which the toddler is more likely to direct again at the, at the baby. Yesterday, my youngest bee hit me. She was mad at me at some, for something. I don't remember. I think she was tired. But in your companion app to the How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, you offer some alternatives to punishment, including expressing your feelings strongly. So instead of punishing B for hitting me, I can let her know how it made me feel. Can you elaborate on this? And what should I exactly say in this moment? I don't like to be hit. I think sometimes we're, we're hesitant to tell our kids how we feel. We've been talking to you a lot about the importance of acknowledging our kids' feelings, but we need to acknowledge our own feelings too. When, and then do you have any idea why she was hitting you in that moment? I think, I mean, honestly, I think she was exhausted. I think she was mad at what we were going to go do next. I think it was something about, you know, needing to transition for dinner. Uh, so, so I might put that into words. 
You don't want to have to go to dinner. You don't want to have to do that right now. Something where I'm putting into words how she's feeling so she knows I get it. Those are great examples. And, and then how can I help B make amends? How can I help her feel better? I think she's, you know, feeling then bad. And I get it that I'm acknowledging her feelings, but is there a way for me to also help her make amends without like forcing an apology, which would not be good? Well, if you, you know, say if she hit you on the arm, you could say like, ow, that hurts. I don't like being hit. You know, can you give it a little kiss to make it feel better? Or can you get me an ice cube? If there's something simple that she could do, even if you don't need an ice cube or a kiss, it always makes kids feel like sort of being a better person. If you give them a chance to be a better person, they can get out of their misery and guilt. So if you can find some little things you can do, that would be nice. So we're reconnecting and we're giving her some words for what she doesn't like so that next time she can tell you in words. And you can you can explicitly tell her, you know, when you don't want to come to dinner, you know, when that when something makes you mad, you can tell me, Mom, that makes me mad. I don't want to stop playing. And because that's that's the big step for kids is to move from physical violence to expressing how they feel in words. And, and that's a you know, that's a big job for them. That's a big developmental phase. Exactly. So I'm really intrigued with your new book, which at the recording of this episode has not come out yet, but it will be out um, by the time our listeners listen. Talk to me about whining. Uh, you know, you your title is How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen, Whining, Fighting, Meltdowns, Defiance, and Other Challenges of Childhood. What about whining? What are your strategies for whining? When my kids were young and we would all be sitting around the table at dinner, it, it was kind of a circus. Three kids sometimes talking on top of each other. My husband and I trying to feed everybody and, and, and manage the conversation. And I think my youngest, my daughter, would sometimes have a hard time getting my attention. And I remember suddenly I would hear this whine. It would be, Mommy, I want some milk. And, and I think, well, you know, it sort of jolt me. It's like the wine gets makes it through all that sound. It's this this, this high pitched like horrible sound that <laughs> did get my attention. So it did work, and I realized that, you know, she probably had asked for more milk in the midst of the whole sort of circus environment, and I hadn't noticed. And so the wine actually was effective, but I wanted her to know that oh, that sound it was just so grating. I didn't really want to respond to it, so I talked to her at a separate time about the melody we use when we ask for something. And I told her that I like to be asked, not with a high melody, mommy, I want some milk. But I liked it when it went, mommy, may I have some milk, please? And I did this thing with my head that you can't see because we're just recording audio. But I would lower my head and raise it as I was saying this to sort of cue her. That's what the melody was. And I, and I, I had her practically go, mommy, may I have some milk, please? And she did it with me. And the next time she whined, all I had to say was, mommy. And then I didn't even have to say anything. I just did this thing with my head. And it was a little reminder to her that if she could ask me the other way, it would make it much easier for me to hear. 
I love that because I think oftentimes whining works. You know, it works because it is a different frequency. So that's a really fun tool. We have had so much fun being with you today. I love your books. So grateful for your contribution to the field of early childhood and helping us be better parents, more empathetic parents. So thank you so much, Joanna and Julie, for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having us. Yes, our pleasure. Joanna Faber is the co-author with Julie King of the new book, How to Talk When Kids Won't Listen, Whining, Fighting, Meltdowns, Defiance, and Other Challenges of Childhood, as well as the best-selling book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. You've been listening to My New Life. If you think this episode might be helpful to a fellow parent, please share. And if you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in today's show, head over to loveevery.com. That's L-O-V-E-V-E-R-Y.com. I'm Jessica Rolfe. Thanks for listening.